This is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. The largemouth bass inhabits waters in almost every state, making the most popular game fish in the United States. Chased by everyone from novice to professional anglers across the U.S., some purely for sport and some for table fare. The state of Florida's fisheries consist of more than 7,500 lakes, ponds, and reservoirs and approximately 12,000 miles of fishable rivers, streams, and canals with no closed seasons. Some of the most popular bass fishing destinations in the world located in our state and it's only a natural occurrence that we bring a tournament angler into the studio to sit down and talk bass fishing in the state, more specifically on the Harris Chain of Lakes located right out our back door. So tonight we have for you, Mr. Chris McIntyre. Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself, what got you into fishing, fishing you do around here. Okay, yeah, hello. So uh, first off, <clears throat> I did uh, several years in the military like Will did uh, himself, and when I got out, I moved back home, got a full-time job, and decided that I needed a new hobby, so we went out and purchased a boat uh, for fishing and family use, and pretty soon it turned into just just fishing use. Uh, every compartment turned into a fishing compartment. We had you know different lures and, and, and different tackle, and uh, eventually more rods. Uh, we live right there in downtown Tavares, so we live right on the Harris Chain. We're, we're blessed to be on uh, one of the bigger chains in, uh, in the nation, uh, and certainly one of the biggest in the state. Uh, renowned for its its largemouth bass so what is like your go-to favorite lure uh, i think everyone's uh everyone's favorite go-to is obviously going to be a worm has been since you were a kid uh and it will be until you know you, you retire and you get back into your old age it's, it's kind of like everything else you start out with something and you end up right back where you started right so you start out with the worm and eventually you're right back to it that's not the question the worm and all different variations from stick worms to ribbon tails to speed worms all of those worms will catch fish it's a question of how many fish are you going to catch and how quickly are you going to catch them uh so so overall it's absolutely a worm you got to mix in other stuff to get them fired up get them to feed goldfish well yeah that works but it's also illegal yeah because it's it's illegal because it works so well (laughs) there's always the uh the spider-man what we call the spider-man and the tequila sunrise for us both those worms a little seven inch ribbon tailed it was like it was blue and red they call they call think it was actually called fire and ice culprit yeah but it looked like spider-man so we you know as kids we called it spider-man worm and then tequila sunrise is the trick. What are you breaking out over there, Chris? So I, got, I, got one, I got one that's, uh, nope, it's not actually. That's why it's in a different package. Can't be trusted, Jordan. It is in a bitters package. It is, but it's a it's a different branded worm. Break it he out brought here. all kinds of neat Break examples it out here for, for us. For just a second. So most of my most of my five plus pound fish have all been caught on a variation of this. So it is a Zoom ribbon tail or old monster as I like to call it, 10 and a half inch. They come in different thicknesses. It's kind of the, the thinner one that I'll throw. So if they're a little finicky, you need to finesse fish them a little bit more, I'll throw this one. Uh, and this is in the plum color. 
They have Plum. They have Plum Crazy. They got all kinds of variations. I've seen Berkeley. I've seen, you know, 10 different companies come out with colors very similar to this. When they turn on to that red, that crawfish color, you know, that time of year, you know they're on some red, and they absolutely love that color. As it transitions and the bluegill make their beds, they'll transition to that blue or that purple with that yellow belly. And it's still, without the yellow, it still represents a little bit of that blue. You can see a lot of that blue flake under the light in that worm, and that worm is just yeah. fantastic. Yeah, I cannot order enough of these to go around. So you say I, order. you telling me you don't just run down to the bait shop and buy stuff. You, you, you actually can't. Don't. You cannot. If you can where you live, you need to. Stock it up. You need to stock it up and hit me up. I you, will buy them in bulk. You know what's funny is, is growing up, I always fished that, you know, seven-inch ribbon tail worm. I never really knew any different. And I honestly didn't know that they came any bigger than that until I spent a few months in New York and we fished on a lake there. And uh, my buddy, he was like, man, why are you throwing those little worms? Like, what do you mean, little worms? These, these are the, they all that big. He's like, no, 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 no. Start throwing these 10 and a half inch worms. And I caught a nine inch bass on a 10 and a half inch worm. Oh, easily. It, I mean, it doesn't matter. The yeah, size of the worm doesn't matter. But throwing that, I caught more, I caught bigger fish more consistently. Absolutely. Than There's a those big, little. big misconception. As we, as we get later in the talk, we'll go over, you know, rattle traps and one knockers and lipless crankbait, crankbaits jerk baits and then you know deep diving crankbaits the bass will eat something almost their size just to feed and that's that's a you know a pretty hot topic for keeping big fish is to weed out a lot of the smaller fish because the smaller fish will feed and they can feed a whole lot faster so break it down for me you're going in you, you got a tournament coming up you're going to go out and fish a tournament the days prior to the tournament what are you what are you looking at as a tournament angler. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, I mean, number one is for me is always weather. It's always going to be a look at weather patterns. Uh, you've got to have, uh, in my opinion, you've got to have practice time. There are guys that can go out with zero practice time and, and just hammer them. That's, I mean, you're, you're, you're rolling the dice on that. But if you go out with practice time, you can find a pattern. It's the same thing all those guys preach, you know, in the MLF and, and, and the Bassmaster Pro Series. So you've got to find a pattern. If you find a pattern that works for you, fantastic i think the big kicker that people see that they don't understand that i that i want people to understand is that pattern is not the only way to catch fish so i'll go out and i'll establish a pattern right so let's say we're we're in june what are we mid-june right now right in florida so a lot of those bass have moved you know they're well done with the spawn they've moved to their their post-spawn areas and now they're transitioning into the deeper offshore areas so you're talking some deeper water over eight foot something over eight foot and in that open water they're looking for structure so they're looking for fish attractors they're looking for eelgrass they're looking for big patches of hydrilla sitting out in you know open water or up in a cove or something like that or they're looking for you know a boat or a school bus or a seaplane like we have in Tiberias that is sunk at some point or a shell bed which is you know obviously what you want is a shell bed uh, and they're sitting in that deeper water waiting so if you can locate those fish you can find some quality fish, and if you can get a spot uh, for a one-day tournament, that's all you need it is four or five or, or ten of those spots. For a two- or three- or four-day tournament like we see with the pros, you need a spot that's either going to reload or you need a lot more of those spots because you're going to catch them 
and they're going to get conditioned to what you're throwing. They see that same beat over and over, they're going to get used to it. So you throw that in practice, and you don't, you know, you soft hook them or you don't hook them at all because you're worried about the tournament. You got to come back with a game plan ready to go. So, so that's one theory is the offshore theory. Now we just saw with uh, one of the MLF series, I believe it was the Toyota series. I could be wrong. That just came through Leesburg on the Harris team where a lot of guys were flipping and there were a lot of smalls, a lot of dinks, but there were also a lot of big fish, you know, four or five, six pound fish caught flipping Kissimmee grass, um, big buggy whips. If you can find buggy whips mixed in with that Kissimmee grass, that's a great difference. You know, if a, if a bass has a hundred yards of the exact same thing, and then he has five yards of something different, he's going to go to that difference every time. So a lot of the guys flip in that grass. That's all they know. That's what they love. But it's not the only way to catch them. So first things that I do are, are check the weather. See how the wind's going to blow. See what, you know, rain's coming in. Rain obviously makes water move a little bit. Um, there, there's pre-rain and post-rain bites. There's there's mid-rain bites. Um, you just kind of have to figure out for that body of water what they're going to do. But, but I do that, and then I establish a pattern. And whatever they're doing on that lake... Pattern-wise, I'll try to stick to that for a game plan. So are they starting to move deeper after spawning because it's starting to get hotter? Or? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So, And I am not an expert by any means on this. I'm still learning myself. It's it's, it's a lot like you guys get really, really heavy into the into the hunting aspect where I try to you know, keep up with you guys or catch up with you guys in the hunting aspect. I just I have that passion for hunting, but I don't think I have it enough to keep up with you know, where are they going minute to minute type deal. And I do with, with bass fishing. It's one of the things I've found. So, so yes, from, from what I understand, 94, 95 degree water is not good for bass. So shallow water where that water will heat up or clearer water where that water will heat up quicker is not good for them. They will move out deeper. They're trying to regulate their body temperatures. So bass have no other way of doing that except to move up and down in the water column, if that makes sense. Yeah. So to cool off, they go to those deep areas. Now, early in the morning, what have you always heard, you know? Yeah. Early, early in the morning, late at night, that's 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 when there is a bite. So that's why. Because that water's cooling off. They can move up and feed on shad, bluegill, crappie, whatever they're eating that time of year. They can move up and eat that bait and not be, you know, overexhausted. Makes sense too, because I mean, you think even as like us as humans, when you get hot and over, you don't want to eat. Yes, yes, it, and it, it very, very much so is. It's very, very relatable to to human nature. Now, some things aren't. Yeah, you know, there's guys that that fish here locally, some local hammers that that just get skunked on certain lakes, you know, for whatever reason. But and those bass are somewhat unpredictable. But but if you establish your patterns well enough you can usually find enough bites to get through. Yeah. So so when we were in South Carolina last week, they were catching them at 22 feet. Jesus. Yes. Yeah, which is crazy because like in Florida, what are you it's, hard, fishing at it's, hard to, foot? it's hard to find 22 feet in Florida, right? Yeah. But yeah, so that gives you an idea they're running It is. Home. So on the okay, Harris, What are you throwing at 22 foot, though? Uh, on the Harris chain, you have uh, several deep holes. Um, oh, I wish I had a graph in front of me. On Harris, you've got several deep holes just off of points. And within those, let's see if I give up too much here. Within those, you have shell beds. 
within those, you have grass lines, you have stuff that you can fish. You have natural points that come off of contour lines. Uh, a lot of the same stuff guys talk about in, in their videos. You will get those contour lines first. You move to that spot. You graph over it. Very simple with side and, and down imaging. And uh, you, you look for those spots. But it's 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 kind of, there's a variable in it. What, what do you throw? What are they eating? So yeah. are, they, are they active? You know, what time of day is it? Does that make sense? Yeah. So if I got to get out there early, give you an example. If I get out there early in the morning and I know I'm going to deep crank one of those holes. Let's say I know there's fish sitting in. They may be suspended, which are one of the hardest yeah. fish to catch or suspended fish. So they may be sitting in 20 feet of water in a 20 feet hole, right? I'll throw a, a, a 5 or a 10 XD crankbait to get it down to that level and then try to touch bottom. I like to touch bottom. I like to know what I'm fishing as it comes off that bottom. It makes a vibration. It makes a sound. Whatever it does down there, it kind of gets their attention. That makes sense. So if that yeah. doesn't work, it's just like baseball. You come through with the cleanup. You throw that worm, yeah. that thicker Thicker, so I was gonna say, like, if you're fishing a worm that deep, are you, are you throwing like a bigger weight on there? Or you are, you are. So I, I will typically throw a five sixteenths uh, ounce weight. If I'm fishing that deep, I will definitely throw something a little bit heavier. Um, I'll never go, you know, as far as one ounce, but I'll get close. <laughs> uh, and then I don't like the theory that they're all sitting on the bottom of that twenty five foot hole. I don't believe it ever gets hot enough in Florida for that water temperature to be that cold. Yeah. Or, or I'm sorry, that warm at the bottom. So that warm at the bottom. I don't. I don't think it gets that way because all the fish that I've ever found in a hole or that deep in Florida, anyway, you know, different in South Carolina where you're talking about, but down here in Florida, they're they're almost always for me suspended on the outside of that hole or on the other side of that hole or right in the middle of it, just kind of stacked. So I'll throw what we call a Carolina rig, where I'll you know I'll pinch the weight up. I'll, I'll throw yeah. um, a different kind of weight uh, a little bit further up. Uh, whether I do, you know, a brass weight to a glass bead and make a little knocking sound as it, as it pops, or whether I just pinch it solely the weight itself, but that bait is actually suspended, however far out mm -hmm. I, I peg that weight from the hook. If that makes sense. So if you go from the hook to the weight, there's a distance there. If you're straight up and down, that distance is equal to what you put it. The further you cast, you know, you think about angles, that angles out. Yeah. So you, you 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 cinch it up a foot, and then you make a fifty or sixty yard cast. That bait is not dangling a foot off the bottom, right? It's probably dangling six inches, you know, five or six inches off the bottom. But I like to keep that bait up in the water, not on the bottom. These are not bottom feeding fish. They will pick up a worm off the bottom, but typically they like to strike from below up. Do you dive at all? Do you scoop it over? Uh, I have before. I do not know. The the reason I ask that is I suspect that if you were to go and dive in those holes, that as you were descending, you got hot water probably for the first 8 to 10 feet. And if the water is clear enough, you'll actually be able to see the temperature change in a thermocline. Like, it'll, you'll, see, yes. you'll see the difference. And I'll bet if you descend another 8 to 10 feet, there'll be another one. And even though the water's only changing a few degrees to us, it feels like, oh, my God. But I'll bet you for the, you know, the fish know that they live there, right? And I'll bet you the, I'm just guessing that the reason you're seeing this fish not on the bottom, but up a little bit, is they're hanging in that, they don't, they're not going all the way to the bottom because it's too cold. 
Have it's you, not not yes. cold. It's it's less preferable to the fish than. So the do you? <clears throat> I'm just, I'm just guessing. Do you do you do you bass fish a lot or no? Well, he's a bluegill fisherman. I so that a, is a very 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 popular topic right now. The thermocline. Yeah, I'm a terrible fisherman. I like to fish. We I will catch, catch I bass. fish a lot. <laughs> so so I try to refrain refrain from going too far into what you see on your graphs because not everybody has those graphs. So I run a Orant's 12 inch unit. On mine, I can see the thermocline. I am oh, really? catching, yes, I am catching the majority of my fish on the thermocline or just above it. Almost never below it, if that makes sense. So what you just said was was dead on for the thermocline. No shit. Not yes. Yes. You, Scientific you mind, dead on. ladies and gentlemen, here at Under Pressure Outdoors. <laughs> Figuring it out on the fly. We call that uh, swag. I would call it scientific wild ass guess. Yeah, stop clock. Okay, (laughs) I wasn't a fan of swag, but the explanation was spot on. Yes, so we we do. You do look for that thermocline. It's just it's one of those things where you know, second podcast here, trying to tune into people where they are at their different levels and whatnot. A lot of your guys that are tuned into the thermocline already, they're pretty pretty far along in bass fishing. They they know what they're looking for in terms of that line and where the fish are going to be below on or above that line. That's good to know, man. Now, for me, it was totally blind squirrel catches. And that, right? Yeah. And, and just an observation in diving and also in saltwater does the same thing when you're okay. fishing. Sometimes you'll, when you have a really hard thermocline, you it, it, normally you'd find fish under the reef, but if it was a really hard thermocline, sometimes also you'd find them just up above it. And it makes sense of freshwater, freshwater fish. Right. So another good point, though, I've had fish below the thermocline on brush piles, sitting inside of, you know, brush piles. Hmm. Now, getting them out of there, getting them to come out and feed or or getting a bait that they want, a little bit tougher. But, yeah, absolutely. That's, That's about the only time I've seen fish below that thermocline is sitting attached to brush piles. In deeper water, uh, Lake Carlton is a perfect, perfect example of that. Hmm. Lake Carlton is a little bit deeper, uh, or to me, it has a deeper consistency and has a lot of deep holes going around that west side of the lake. Uh, and in that lake, there are a lot of brush piles. And this time of year, there's there's fish sitting on those brush piles that are not in large. I should say that they're in large groups, but they're not schooling in my mind. In my mind, I see a school of fish. They're chasing bait. You know, they're, they're moving a little bit. And those are the ones I see on the thermocline or just above it that I'm targeting. I don't know that I've ever really spent any time fishing Lake Carlton. You're missing out. Yeah, I've always passed right through Lake Carlton to go over to Horseshoe. Yeah, Carlton, Carlton is, a, is a gold gym. And that's... You I know, mean, you, I you guess... You come out here and you... <clears throat> You kind of threw out, you know, the tournament fishing thing. We I've actually gone a lot away from that. So I still fish some of the opens, some of the small opens. Um, but I found more enjoyment in the filming side. So in, in going out and catching what I can on different gear, using different companies' gear, and seeing what works, what doesn't work, and then sharing that back. And I feel like a lot of my target audience is, is people that don't necessarily bass fish, you know, every single day. But they do it one day two days a week and they can't kick the habit and they want to know a little bit more 
and a little bit more and a little bit more. And this is the same stuff when you first, you know, introduced me is, is in that first three years of owning the boat on that chain, I figured out the hard way. And a lot of times with a Lawrence 4X 2D sonar, I mean, I had almost nothing, but I could tell how hard the bottom was. And if I wasn't sure, we tied on a rattle trap. We found the grass. We found where the grass edge was, or we threw a Carolina rig or what we call a sea rig. And I found that shell, you know, bobbing across the bottom. And that's, that's a big part of it. But man, Carlton is, is just, that's it. That's a gold gym. I've, I've caught a lot of fish. So two weeks from now, Chris is going to be on Lake Carlton going, what the hell happened? Look at all these boats out here. Yeah. <laughs> two weeks. They want two days. These guys are quick. Well, yeah. you know, for the podcast to come what out. What are we? Oh, yeah. I guess. <laughs> what, what are we? Uh, next week will be the Wednesday open on the Harris Channel. We'll see if any of your followers are there. I'll stop by the lake, and if it's loaded, we know. Yeah, you'll know yeah. how to find Chris. He's always wearing an unpressure outdoors hat. You got, what, five, six, seven of them? Uh, at least. At yeah. least. <laughs> He's just styling. He's got the stickers. We hit him up with some other well, stickers. Listen, you, you come out with a design that I like, first off. I know the owner's. That's a, yeah. that's a decent plus. And then the hat just fits right. You don't find many of those, you know? When you find a hat that just fits right, you're like, I'm going to wear this, and I'm going to wear it in seven different colors like the wife wears shoes. <laughs> these, these are the first hats that I've actually bought several, and I think about which hat I'm going to wear with what Same. Same. Yeah. Same. Like, I yeah. second that. My wife laughs at it like, you're finally starting to coordinate. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. I don't coordinate. Listen, I'll wear a red shirt and that light blue under pressure outdoors hat all day. But same. Yeah. You wake up in the morning. I bought. I mean, I've worn a hat since I can remember, and I've never had one type of hat that I wore in seven different colors. Well, we've got more. We can sell you seven or eight more before you leave. Yeah, no, we, we, got, we need to do that. <laughs> so, Chris, explain to me. Like we talked about Carolina rigs and all these other different rigs and different baits and stuff. Can you explain to me maybe how some of these different rigs are set up, what they're used for these different baits? I mean, cause to, to someone who doesn't, uh, to someone who always fishes bass with shiners, right? Me. What, what's a rattle trap? Okay. So, so yes, and that is that is you know the point that I'm at right now. That is absolutely the target audience. So so Rattle Trap is a brand. Rattle Trap is a is a pretty popular brand out there. It's been around for a long time. And I'll break one out so you can see it. So you can kind of get a say a Rattle Trap is like a Q-tip visual representation right? because yeah. Q-tip. I think we got one right here. Yeah. It, well, I'll say it's like a, a Q-tip or Band-Aid in the in the sense that uh, Q-tip and Band-Aid are actually brands of cotton swabs and I forget what they call band-aids bandages or whatever but pick to take that thing off of there hang on me i'll get it off of there for starters this All is right. where the rattle trap gets its name right yes so so some of them come with a rattle some of them yes there you go so they can yeah. some of them do not come with a rattle it is simply the idea of how they shake through the water to me anyways um so a rattle trap is a lipless crankbait. You can think about a crankbait. I think just about everybody has seen a worm and they've seen a crankbait, right? Right. The, the millions of others, you know, maybe a maybe a buzzbait or, or a spinnerbait or whatever. But but to me, the, the two biggest things that I've caught fish on in the last three years, yeah, Jordan, don't hit that in the fan. 
Oh, Lord. So the, the two biggest things that I've caught fish on in the last three years have been a rattle trap or a uh, booyah has a great line. Uh, they call the one knocker, okay, uh, of the lipless crankbait and throwing a worm. And those two, I kind of, I'm, I'm able to clean up, if that makes sense. So if I, if I load up and I get to a spot and it doesn't matter whether you're bank fishing or you're doing whatever, I will throw that rattle trap or that lipless crankbait first. So uh, the one by Booyah is obviously called the one knocker. And, and I'll throw that one knocker or whatever, and I'll try to stir them up. And I might catch a one or a two pounder just on that little, you know, that little one knocker or rattle trap or whichever brand that I'm throwing that day. And if you want, we can get into the color later. But when I'm done with that and I catch that little one pounder, if you look, if the spot is loaded with bass, they will start schooling. So they'll see that one fish eat, and they'll go, hey, it's time to eat. And they'll all circle around and go, hey, time to eat. So how deep right? water are usually rattle trapping? So uh, that's a good question. So uh, I'm using it. Uh, I threw it this week and caught some decent fish that I was showing, you know, Will and Jordan earlier in a foot of water. It does not dive. It has no bill on the front. It is a lipless crankbait, so it has no lip on it. It's not going to dive to a certain. Now, different brands are going to dive to a certain, you know, level, but that's all on how you crank them. So, one of the spots that I've got that I absolutely love, and we take people to, is from the bank, and it does not matter what time of year. From the bank, we learned this the hard way. From the bank, there is a uh, six foot hole, or, or five foot hole, four foot, off of the bank. Okay. Mm. So those fish, we learned, are sitting in that hole, and they're waiting for their food to come off that bank and come right over their heads. And out. As soon as they're silhouetted, they're bang. Yes. Yeah. That's absolutely what it is. Color plays a little bit, um, but in my mind, the color thing, they're going to get a flash. They're going to get a tiny little flash of color. So the more color on the bottom, I don't care what color the top is or it says eat me or whatever, the more color the bottom says or the bottom is, is the first flash they're going to get. So that's what you determine on what are they eating that time of year, right? So you're early right after spawn. What are they going to eat? They're looking for that red, okay? Later on in the year, like right now, we have a bunch, and I think we're starting to get towards the end of it, but we have a bunch of bluegill beds stacked up anywhere from three to nine foot of water. They're looking for those bluegill colors, and I Tried to bring them with me, but I guess I broke a couple throwing them into the bridge uh, yesterday. But they, they sell bluegill colors. So match that bluegill color. Match the hatch, you know. And throwing that bluegill color over, you're able to run it in whatever depth that you want to. You're able to run it in that one to two, if you really crank down on it, maybe two and a half, three foot range, right? To get it to dive down, you're, you're cranking a little bit faster, and that's when they'll come up and they'll eat. So, so you, so you're a fan of the rattle trap. I love rattle. I love I it. I love am. it when you can get bass just tearing up a rattle trap. Oh, you hear me just rambling on about them. I absolutely love them, yeah. and I love every brand. I love every color. There's a, a great company out now called Crank Wraps. You heard about them? No, me neither. Until about two weeks ago. <laughs> so they make wraps that go on your crankbaits or your lipless <laughs> crankbaits. So instead of buying twenty colors. You buy 10 wraps, 
And when you go, hey, it's that time of the year where they're going to they're gonna start eating bluegill. Let me just wrap this thing. See, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, that I've always, it's extremely interesting. I've always thrown, and I, I always maintain at least one, usually two in my tackle box, of the the blue and silver rattle trap brand lipless cranker rattle trap. Yes. And I will fish that sucker until you can see the beads on the inside. Yes. And I, I've had several. I know I throw them away. Once you, you get it, they get so scratched up from getting hit over oh, and over and over and over again. You can see the beads inside there. I but don't. the fish will still keep hitting them. Those are called battle scars. I don't yeah. Throw, I don't throw them away. There's an original. Yeah. Rattle yeah. trap for you. Yeah. So they've got that, that real distinct fin, or at least the ones that I've seen. I'm sure they sell them without it. But the ones that I've seen from rattle trap have that real distinct fin. Yeah, it's like a dorsal fin on top oh, of it. Oh, it really is like a dorsal fin. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the chrome. And it's got a little bit of red accent. And you can see that thing has been through a war zone. You know yeah. how much time you, you would see save? Teeth marks you know how much fronts? time you'd save with rattle wraps because you wouldn't have to untangle its hooks? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's part of the process because as you, as you untangle them, you really decide what you yeah, want. Yeah, you're like, all right, do I really want to fish with this color? <laughs> I was laughing at that you were, as he's trying to fish this out, he's the trebles rock on it. Yes. Twine. I got a buddy, man. W- w- neither one of us are, are great fishermen by any stretch of the imagination. But my one buddy that he loves a rattle trap. He, d- he starts out with a worm, switches out to a rattle trap just because we don't know what we're doing. We don't catch that many fish and we're just trying to figure out what the heck. You know, we might get a bite off, we change baits. But man, this guy does not check his back, back casts. When he throws on that rattle trap, I'm as far to the back of the boat as I can possibly get. Because all I see is those treble hooks coming back at me, man. Dave, he's taking my hat off with him. <laughs> those treble hooks, man. It's like I swear the treble hooks catch more fishermen than they ever will fish. And yeah, and they but, will. They absolutely yeah, will. Yeah. If you haven't been hooked, if you if you consider yourself, you know, and this isn't by tournament standards because there's a million different tournaments, different, you know, different series and different areas and different chains. There's guys that go out and just fish Harris chain every single tournament. Right. But, but to consider yourself an avid bass angler to me, if you haven't been hooked yet, you're not doing it. You got to get hooked. You're going to get hooked by yourself. I think more. And that's the, that is, if there is a downside to a rattle trap or a, I call it a rattle trap, but a, but a lipless crankbait, if there's a downside to it, it's that you are throwing the dice every time. We did it this week. We did it uh, yesterday. We caught three or four, four pound, four pound plus bass on a rattle trap, and every one of them, the second they come up and they shake, you're playing the lottery because that hook's going somewhere. <laughs> and the second they spit it out, if you're lucky, they get two hooks. If you're not, or, or two sets of treble hooks. If you're not, they spit it out. You're, you're talking about when you go down to lip the fish, you're, and they start shaking. They yes. end up putting. Yeah, I've had that happen. I, I've got scars. Or you start <laughs> to lean down. Yep. And the hook comes up and whizzes past your face, Ooh. or hits your costas, and yeah. See, I, I was gonna say, I feel like the fish know. I, did they just have that sixth sense that you're about to reach down and grab? And they're like, this sucker's got. Oh, they do. He's got me one hook. I got five more, baby. And then yeah. he shakes his head, trying to get you too. Man, I've been hooks dang good by doing it especially you, you know how you know though is when you reach down with a net yeah if you watch yeah. if you watch the second on a and this is not true for a one pound fish or a two pound fish but every fish i've ever had that's over four pounds 
the second somebody sticks a net in the water, they go, uh uh-uh. It's on now. And they'll swim the opposite way. It's like they know. They've all been caught before. And they're, like, sitting around telling stories, you know? And they're like, hey, when that net comes down, bro, go the other way. (laughs) (laughs) And then, to caveat that, they go, listen, if you do get inside the net, shake your head and tangle that hook up in every web in his net that you can. It'll be 20 (laughs) minutes before he throws that sucker back at us. Yeah. So how many nets have you cut just to get the lure back out and get it back out in the water? We're still on number one. There's a theory to that, though. Uh, I guess we'll tell it. So yesterday, uh, Whitney, my wife, leaned down to net a fish. Uh, I think it was like a three and a half pound fish. Decent sized fish. He's coming up. He's head shaking on a rattle trap. I think that was on a chatterbait. But she goes down to net him and she lifts him up and she goes, was there always a hole in your net? I said, yeah, there sure was. There's a reason to it. You was a big fish. Boys, you say that nine pounder slip right through that three inch hole in your net. <laughs> you have to. You know, listen, I had him in the net all the way out the boat. Okay. And that nine pound bass slipped right through that three inch hole yeah. in that net. And yes, I need a new one. <laughs> that's all there is to it. So that, that's your tip right there, right? Just oh, they sell better. It. They sell better nets. I just haven't bought one yet. <laughs> Blame the net or the net man or woman. So <clears throat> explain to me these different the, the different ways you're the different ways you're rigging worms and why. Okay. So um uh, two of the biggest that I throw is that, that big ribbon tail that you're um that you're asking about or that you're talking about. No, grab one here just so I know I'm walking you through it the correct way. So I throw almost all EWG or extra wide gap hooks. And I do that for a reason. They have an offset already built into them, right? So you guys have probably seen a million of these in different aughts, different brands. With these EWG hooks, they already have an offset up by the head, right, where you tie the knot. So when I go to the pointy end, sharp end, I'll go right down the middle of the head of the worm, okay? And I'll go down almost the exact same distance as that offset is on the other end. And then I'll come out. Okay? I go all the way up. So most people stop where there's a bend in the hook. Keep going. Go all the way up. When you're up to where you're pretty much covering your knot of where you tied the line, you want to spin it around. And as soon as you spin it around, you'll see it start to form almost a a straight line with the, the, the tip of the hook or the shank of the hook. And then I'll pinch up maybe a quarter of an inch. Sometimes if I'm, you know, I'm missing bites or I've had a couple of nibbles and I just can't set the hook on them, I'll go a little bit further and I'll pinch down a half an inch and then I'll bend that worm over and I'll bring the hook straight through the other side. Okay, so now the hook is exposed on the back side of the worm. All right, then I'll grab the worm just above the hook's point and I'll pull up and I'll push the tip of that hook back into the worm. And that's a weedless setup. We it's almost it, just like just under the skin if, yes. if it had a skin on it. Yes. It's called yeah. skin hooking. Uh, you can look that up online. You can look up, you know, Texas rigging plastics. It's the exact same way. It's the way I like to hook a lot of my, my plastics. So if I know that my hookup ratio is going to be a, a lot of one to two pound fish, um, I will generally not worry about it. If I'm just trying to find those fish or, or trying to find out what they're doing, uh, we're not in the business of catching 200 
you know, one pounders. We're trying to catch a little bit bigger fish. As soon as I find those, I will do that where I pinch a little bit more of the worm up and I'll come out the other side with the hook. And now that the hook's exposed, I'll pinch up and I'll hide that hook back into the worm. And that is a, uh, a Texas rigged, uh, with a weight on top, it's a Texas rigged, weedless rigged worm. So we do that with the ribbon tail, and I'm a big fan of doing that on what they call the Florida swim bait of the uh, speed worms as well. So if you can, can you describe, can you describe the action? So if you've thrown the worm out, you're letting it settle to the bottom. What are you doing, if you can, if you can try to describe it mechanically to make the worm twitch? Great question. So there's there's different theories on this. So what I've seen a lot of on TV, on YouTube, everywhere I've looked is you point your rod up 12 to 6 in a clock position, right? Rod tip is pointed straight to the sky, okay? And they'll point it down towards the water and then they'll flick, flick up, okay? They'll, they'll tick, tick the rod up to make that bait bob on the bottom. It's moving slightly, okay? So a lot of the spots that I like to fish are anomalies. They're, they're grass, 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 and then a hard sand spot or shell bed, okay? There is a time and a place for that bobbing up 12 to 6 position. I don't go to it first. I see a lot of guys go to that first. and Maybe that's why I've had the success that I've had on the air stand is because I'm not doing the exact same way. Fish are very finicky, right? I do something with the same worm in a different way. They're more liable to bite if they've seen 200 Bassmaster, you know, pro guys flipping it the same way that 12 to 6 i turn my rod horizontal right and i go to my strong side so for me right hand retrieve i turn that whole rod in my hand to my right side the tip of the rod is on my right side and then i just take it slowly to my right so the difference in that is that i'm bobbing it on the bottom and that depends on the type of worm obviously but that that big ribbon tail that we were talking about that's what i do with that one and we'll, you know, go over rigging or whatever you want. But I'm bobbing that one on the bottom. And as I'm doing that, this soft plastic likes to float. Okay? It's not it's not 100% buoyant. It will not float on the surface if you just throw it out. But it's pretty buoyant on its own. So when I throw that with a 5 weight, bullet weight that I like, that tail is coming up off the bottom and it's waving. That's that ribbon tail action that we were talking about. So even though it's sitting still, that tail is waving. And every time I bob it, I'm not picking it up off the bottom. I'm making him jump across the bottom, maybe an inch off the, the, the bottom floor. So as a novice, if I can describe the rig, you've got, you, you've rigged it Texas rig style. You've got the, the bullet weight. Right. A foot to 18 inches away from the hook. The weight's on the bottom. Okay. Right? Am I describing that correctly? What are you What are you looking for? That's the question. Well, I'm asking you. If that's well, there's, what two, there's two different ways. So if you're asking about the Carolina rig um, or the sea rig, mm-hmm. as we call it, that's when you pinch that weight 6 to 12 inches away from the hook. Okay? Okay, I got you. If you're doing a standard way of rigging it, you will tie on your, your bullet weight or whatever kind of weight you like to throw, a split shot or whatever. You'll t- do it right above right at the, the hook. Nose. Okay. Yes, right at the nose of the bait. Um, my go-to four or five days a week um, is this. 
Okay, I will throw that Carolina rig, but I like to put it in my back pocket. So I like to use it when this won't work. Because then those fish that I've shown this to 20 times haven't seen that Carolina rig. And the difference in that, see if I can explain it to the microphone as I have it here. But see how that weight is pretty much attached to that worm, right? Correct. So you have your line coming out that goes up to your rod. I will use a bobber stopper to put on the line and it cinches down. So it will keep that weight wherever I want it. I want it right on top of the worm. So the entire time it's going down, that ribbon tail is kicking up and it's making movement, but that weight is on the bottom. I can feel the bottom. I know exactly where that worm is for the depth that I'm fishing and I'm scooting it along the bottom, right? Same concept for that, that 12 to six tick that we were talking about that a lot of guys use. It's going up and it's going straight back down, right? It's doing that because that weight, the weight that's controlling it is right at its head. It's, it's essentially what guys refer to as a shaky head um, of some sorts, but it's staying connected, okay? Where your Carolina rig, to explain something we did, you know, talked about earlier, 6 to 12 inches, that weight will be on the bottom. You're throwing weight into a pool or into a body of water. It's going to sink, right? But if you peg that out 6 to 12 inches away from the hook, the bait's not going to hit the bottom. It's going to stay suspended a little bit. Correct. So you're throwing the weight to the bottom, and then 6 inches or 12 inches away, your bait is suspended up in the water. So if those fish aren't eating or they don't want to eat off the bottom, uh, maybe they're not stacked in the bottom. Maybe they're stacked a foot off the bottom or two foot off the bottom. I'll throw that Carolina rig through them, and it'll be right at their own height. Does that kind of sum it up? It does. So <clears throat> explain to me, uh, I mean, Florida is, is, is really neat in, in the fact that you can find lakes here where you can see 30 feet. And then you can find lakes where you can see three inches. What kind of effect does that have on what colors you're throwing, the techniques you're using, so on and so forth? It has a huge effect um, for the, you know, the, the depth and the clarity of the water that you're throwing. So uh, in a Harris chain type of lake, uh, you'll still see guys throwing, you know, white skirted chatterbaits or, or white skirted spinnerbaits. That was a big thing at the Bassmaster Open here, or, or sorry, the uh, Toyota series or MLF, whatever it was here recently. Uh, that was a big thing was white skirts. You saw everybody throwing a white swim head and a white skirt on their, you know, jigs or their bladed jigs or, or their, their spinnerbaits or their buzzbaits, whatever they were throwing. It was all white. You can mix that up and go with different colors. So there's a, there's a, a theory to that and you kind of again it's one of those how far into it do you want to get because how many days are you in the water so a guy like me that's constantly on youtube or constantly watching live events of the bass masters i can pretty much time out when this the shad spawn is going to be i can pretty much time out like hey last week i was here and i didn't see bluegill beds in this stretch in nine foot of water and now i see big bright circles on the bottom so I know the color change has really hit then, if that kind of makes sense. So it's 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 all a game. It's all kind of you, you constantly have to change. I would say for me and my personal experience, the early early spring, right after the spawn, 
I'm throwing red. I'm throwing anything in moving baits. In, in moving baits, I'm throwing red. Okay, I'm throwing that bright red or an orange, uh, maybe a burnt orange to, to yellow coming off the bottom or chartreuse off the bottom. And as we transition later into the year, like we talked about before, I'm going to my blues. I'm going to my blue and my green, maybe some purple mixed in with that chartreuse or that yellow and maybe a big spot to, to kind of show what, you know, hey, it's a, it's a bait fish going by. Your shad spawn that was oh, a month and a half ago, a month ago, your big shad spawn, if you can get around those spawning shad and throw that original rattle trap that we were talking about in chrome a little bit ago, it's fire. You can't beat it. Oh, I bet. You, you absolutely can't beat it. It looks identical to the shad to them because it's giving off that reflection. Um, same thing with a spinnerbait. You're throwing that spinnerbait. Uh, you, you want you want more, but you don't want to go over the top. So in your clear water, you guys are very familiar with Lake Ola. So yeah. in Lake Ola, you have to be careful because in Lake Ola, where it is clear to 10 foot, 12 foot, I've seen 12 foot at the bottom of that lake. I'm telling you right now, you can't throw a braid, braided line yeah. and catch fish on a worm. They can see the line. They can see you. They can see the boat. You have to finesse them a little bit more. So, it's, so in a lake like that, I love to stick to natural colors. I won't go crazy. So, you know, I've always thrown braid, even regardless of the water color, I usually run about four feet of a monofilament leader on the end of my braid. Okay. To avoid being able to see that braided line. And that works. It really does. And that'll catch you a lot of fish. The question is how many fish will it catch you before the rest of that? I mean, we, we scanned over uh, two months ago. You know, I fish Ola all the time now. And two months ago, two and a half months ago, we scanned over Ola and we could see bass in big schools sitting in the bottom of holes in between grass beds. And it was amazing. But I knew that I'd messed up because everything that I had tied on was ready for the hair's chain. It was ready for that milky, you know, mud-stained water on, you know, Dora and beyond. Obviously, Beauclair and the Apopka Canal is pretty clean right now. But it was ready for that dirty water. And I realized, like, man, I've thrown here a hundred times. And they've seen it. I know they've seen it. But they've also seen my braid. They've seen, you know, my giant EWG hook hooked into that worm. Like, they've seen everything. They know exactly what's coming. So for that, I like to stick to natural colors, more natural shapes, um, match the hatch. You've seen a lot of those, uh, what are they called? The, uh, oh man, the skinny little fish, uh, needle, needlefish. Yeah, oh yeah. You've seen yeah, a yeah. but do we sell so many needlefish in Lake Ola that I was tearing them up on this. I, I've got one for you actually. Just a giant jerk bait with natural colors. Oh, yeah, I bet. Thing's oh, my goodness. Fair, fair share of battle scars there, too. Oh, that thing is huge. And that thing gets absolutely slaughtered in Lake Ola only because natural colors, and it is the size and the shape of the needlefish. So me and uh, Brad Hancock saw that and said, man, we need one of those. And I went and found one. You know. And we went back. I, I look at that, and I think about all uh, another place where I've seen an ungodly amount of needlefish. <clears throat> and... There's some big old stripers in there, and I bet you could. Where you is could that at? Yeah. We'll talk <laughs> about that later. Pond. Yeah, Skeeter Pond. We'll talk about that later. Uh, but you'd have to do it at night. So 
I mean, we we've talked a lot about uh, baits here, but I'm looking at this uh, this here Phoenix you got sitting next. Yeah, to me. am I allowed to tell you about that? Oh, yeah, that, let's yeah. Hear that. that if is. If you're ready to hear it, let rod, me tell you. Dude. Let me tell you. Yes, it, in terms of you know, me and Will kind of followed a lot of the the same same pathway in life. Graduated from the same high school. Both went to the army. Both to the same job. Same MOS. We're both scouts. Both had the same senior scout. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we ended up having it's some, a, one of the same. It's a small leaders. world, I tell you. Yeah, it really is. But since I've moved home, you know, new job, new career, had a kid, kind of settled down. I really found a home in bass fishing, like I never did when I hunted, and I still love hunting. I still love to, you know, get out and hunt. We're on a new lease this year. I can't wait. But this is my bread and butter. Man, let me tell you, since I've been turned on to these rods, I am pumped, and I mean pumped. These things have changed the game for me. It's insane. It's, it's like it's uh, – Jordan, let me – I'm going to put one of these rods in here, and I'll describe it for a second. Tell me if you've ever felt anything just holding no, the rod. That's what I, I You've I never was, held it. But no, I, I, was, I was just holding it a second ago, and uh, it is. Dude, it is just – Dude, it hold, a slick, hold the button. It's a slick it. rod. Yeah. That is a triple-A a Portuguese cork. Dude, it's – So so take I mean, it. It, it looks Hold on to the rod. Too. Hold on. Put your hand around the rod. No, no, no. Up higher. I'm going to tap it on the ground. Up here. Oh, up here. Oh, jeez. There's no cork on the bottom. No. No. So this is the M1 nanotech rod. This thing is insane. So that was actually the first thing I noticed about the rod when you brought it out. I was like, that rod has, yeah, no I saw that too. Yes. So, uh, we, you know, fish obviously three, four days a week on the hair chain. Ended up meeting a guy named Jeff Baller. He was fishing the Bassmaster open and like, Hey man, you got an open seat. Yeah. I'd love to come out and fish with you. I'll kind of learn a couple of things. I'll learn more than a couple of things, but one of the biggest things that he set me up with was Phoenix rods. And this has been an absolute game changer for me. So just getting into it, you know, I'm paying 50, 60, 70 bucks a rod for cheaper end rods. And I'm breaking them left and right. And it's taken like two, three, four weeks to get them back from the factory. And I'm kind of wondering, like, do I really need to go spend, you know, $1,000 in, in Ducket or one of those other big brands that are really good. And it, it he turned me onto these, and I'm telling you right now, I'll never buy another brand rod. The things are insane. So they boast, I think they boast on their website of like like 63 or, I, I, I could be wrong. It's like 60 something percent more uh, sensitivity in the rods. Boys, let me tell you, when I threw over the same shell bed that I've been fishing for months in Harris, and I'm dragging the shells on the bottom, I thought I was getting bit. Every single time. No I'm, no, I'm not even kidding you. I'm not even kidding you. So there's this little sensitive part that you can see pretty well. Right here. Sorry, right here where you hold underneath the reel. Everybody yeah. does it. No matter left hand or right hand, it doesn't matter. You're holding on to this little tiny part. So as I learn more about, you know, the bass fishing world and the kind of the technicality side of it, I never really realized you're holding on to that. That's your first hint at a bite. Right. That's how you feel everything. You feel... I'm in the grass, which means I need to pop it out because they're sitting in the grass. Or I'm on the shell bed. Now I'm off the shell bed. That's huge. So yeah, it's absolutely huge. That's so, the big difference in you and me, Chris, because my first indication of a good bite 
is when the bobber goes under. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. This thing. That's that's when, that's when I've got to get the beer in the cup holder, stand back up, get over there. (laughs) Well, Brad, Brad is a lot like you. Brad, Brad usually braces himself when he gets a bite and he goes, grass, grass, grass. I go, bro, listen, I'll tell you something. Gerald Swindle says on his podcast, pretty well known. That fish does not have pockets. He ain't got armpits, and he ain't carrying a purse. If he's touching it, it's in his mouth. Set the hook, <laughs> Set the hook already, bro. And by the time, see, he finally, I, I, I kind of, uh, I don't think I'm at the level to say I taught him, but I showed him to flipping, and we flipped the Apopka Beauclair Canal, and this man caught his first five-pounder flipping. I think it was his first fish flipping on a big old, you know, seven-foot-six heavy rod. And it was like, I mean, it, it changed. It changed his world because it's like they take it when you flip into that heavy cover, so you know, big buggy whips or whatever. When they take it, you have a second, maybe, to set thinking? the hook. And if you get them, it, it's it's going to be fun. So explain uh, what flipping is or the technique. It's, it's a technique. Yeah, you have flipping and you have pitching. So pitching, obviously, you know, a little bit further out, but. Uh, your flipping technique is when you're up close to your cover. In my mind, anyways, it might not be the textbook, but in my mind, you're closer to your cover. So instead of fishing the outside, you see a grass line, right? That really short, tan grass you see a lot of. Some of it's green uh, on the Harris chain, for example, or in Ola. A lot of that is called Kissimmee grass, okay? You can throw a rattle trap, chatterbait, you know, worm, whatever you want on the outside of that. If they're not biting in there and it's hot, Sometimes they're sitting up in that weed. Um, it is a grass, Kissimmee grass, that grass that grows in sandy bottom. That's one of the biggest things I've learned in three, three and a half years, four years of, of fishing like this, is that, man, they love sandy bottom. So many of these lakes are muck, 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 that when you find sandy bottom, it's like finding a sand dollar. <laughs> it's a male like they, oh, they flock to it. So you get in closer to those areas. Um, there's... A million techniques. You don't have to hold the bait. Some people do. I do. You hold the bait in your left hand. If you're right-handed, you hold the bait in your left hand. You click the reel with your right hand. Uh, you point towards your target. You go down and you flip up and you let go of the bait at the same time. You're only making, if you want to call them a cast, you're only making, you know, 5, 10, 15 feet at the most. But you're more accurate with where you're going. And I aim for the base of some of that grass. You're letting it fall. As the bait falls, you tick it up once or twice, tick it up once or twice again, and then you pull it back in and you make another flip. So you're very fast. It's very, very fast pace. It's not for everyone, um, but if you're bank fishing and you're throwing a spinnerbait around a log pile, you know, that's that's kind of catty corner to you, 45 degree angle off to your left, and you're dragging it over that log, pick up a big old crawl. I think I brought some for you. I did here. So Bitters makes a jitter crawl that I absolutely love in June Bug. Jitter crawl, you can you can use this with a you know they sell flipping hooks, big old tungsten uh, tungsten hooks that will set the hook and and with a different knot will get you a better coverage. But you can do it with an EWG hook, and you can use one of those big crawls, kind of crawdad looking baits, and flip in and out of that grass. Or if you're fishing that log, flip closer to the shore on that log. And just kind of bob it up and down. 
That's the best way to describe it. When it hit the bottom, bob it up. When it hit the bottom, bob it up. You're looking for a reaction bite. This fish is not out feeding on shad or whatever. You're looking for that reaction bite. If that makes any sense. Yeah, he just looks yeah, at it absolutely. and goes, oh, shit. And then, he does. He yeah. really does, though. I mean, in all seriousness, you you will make, God, I think I watched these guys make, you know, two million cast in this last tournament. Um, wow, what's the guy's name? Bobby Lane, I think, was the guy's name. Flipped the whole tournament, or, or almost the whole tournament, in Kissimmee grass. Some of the same grass that we overlook every single day. And the guy caught a lot of one and two pounders. But he also caught, you know, seven or eight. I don't know how many five or six pounders that ended up, I think he finished second. The fish are sitting there. You're just, if you want to catch all of them, you kind of overlook that. You're just kind of throwing from the bank or throwing from your boat or doing whatever. Get in there and flip. You don't need to start off with a seven, six or eight foot heavy flipping rod. You'll get there when you break one. (laughs) (laughs) When you break one on a, on a six or seven pounder, you'll go, we got to go to Bass Pro right now. Yeah. Yeah, I had a really nice rod that I broke. Uh, I, I broke it. I mean, maybe a foot and a half up from the reel. Snapped it off clean. That is brutal. Yeah, I tripped and fell on it walking oh, up the okay. set of stairs. <laughs> I was like, man, how do you do that? He's like, that's a lot of that hanging out of but the tailgate. I mean, in all, in all seriousness, so the other, the other uh, one that I brought, the other Phoenix rod that I brought is the Maxim. Is that the one with these little yes. tiny eyes? That's a 7.6 Maxim, yes. I think there were EIS um, uh, eyes on them. What's the point? Or guides on them. But they are, I mean, this thing's insane. We had one, um, I forget I was telling a story with two, but I told me and the wife were out yesterday again. We're out doing, you know, trying to get some footage and have fun. We had a babysitter for once. We're out fishing and she is catching nothing. And I felt terrible, but they kept eating. And in fact, the bigger version of that worm I showed you a little bit ago, that ribbon tail. He engulfed it. I could like feel it when he did it with that rod. And I let him go all the way out to the grass line and come all the way back. And the second he got onto the boat, I took that rod and I tried to throw it to the sky. I'm not going to, you know, put it out there and be like, oh, yeah, it's great if I haven't tried to break it. And, dude, I've, I've had probably 10 hook sets on that rod on the Maxim. And I cannot break the thing. It doesn't even waver. It's insane. He's that, taking ripping lips to a whole new level. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, and that's the bad part is, is like with a crankbait or a lipless crankbait or whatever, you don't want to wrap too hard because if you do, you open a hole. Yeah. As their head turns, it, come, yeah. it slips out of that hole. With a hook, you're a little bit better, especially if it's in the top of the mouth. But I've been slamming these things with these Phoenix rods, and I haven't had an issue yet fingers crossed because i'm hammering them even though i mean that was a three three pounder i think three five that i did that to yesterday but it's not the first one <laughs> so what weight line are you throwing and uh, what type of line i should say well it depends on what you're throwing if i'm throwing a real heavy you know eelgrass or something like that and i i feel like or or hydrilla if you know what hydrilla is i mean hydrilla is some nasty nasty stuff depending on how thick it is where you're fishing i'll throw a braid I'll throw a braid. Uh, in this, uh, in this aspect where I'm throwing the rattle trap or I'm throwing the worm in an area that I've pressured somewhat, I'll throw a 15 to 20 pound. Uh, I think it's Seagar's Red Label, and I've broken 
20 other brands of wine. I wish I would have wrote them all down because I could be like, oh, yeah, I broke this one, this one, this one. But it, but I'm now on to the Cigars Red Label. And uh, I think these both have – nope, the, the Cranking Stick has 20-pound and the Worm Rod has 15-pound uh, uh, fluoro on it. So braid, I throw it when I'm flipping. Um, I'll throw it with a chatterbait. Um, I brought one here tonight, but I'll throw it with a jackhammer tra- chatterbait coming out of eelgrass. When I'm in really thick grass and I'm worried about it coming out or I'm worried you're going to get a fish and you're going to start tugging and you're going to put a lot of stress on that line, that's when I'll switch to braid. But same guy, Jeff Baller, kind of turned me into like, hey, you don't need 60-pound braid when you're throwing a worm around a single hole for two-pound fish all day. You can you can back it off of that a little bit. And I did. I kind of went too far. Uh, fished a tournament. And ended up having two two or three big bites in one spot. I mean, 20 minutes before it was over, and it was on the wrong rod. And I had, I think I had 12 or 14-pound fluoro, and I broke both of them off right at the boat. I mean, four, maybe five-pound plus fish that I absolutely could have used. Let's <laughs> <laughs> make a big difference. Hurts. It yeah. still hurts. It still hurts. So now I won't go backwards if I'm throwing a finesse rod. You know, I'm still learning about that, throwing a rooster tail or throwing throwing a wacky rig or something that really, really you do not want them to see the line. You don't want them to feel the line, that kind of thing. Lighter tackle, then I'll throw that lighter line. But as a general rule right now, I'm throwing 15 to 20-pound fluoro. Um, that's that, again, I believe it's Seagar's red label. They sell it at Walmart. It's not stupid expensive. And then uh, I think P-Wine is the breed that I'm throwing, and that stuff's just... 50 pounds amazing you see i i mainly fish when it's not hunting season so my (laughs) fishing rods double both for freshwater and saltwater i don't have uh specific rods that i I would fish either or with but i do have one rod that i love 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 my favorite thing to throw when they're biting on it is a topwater frog and when i'm when i'm throwing that frog i constantly hook it up on that Abu Garcia 6,600 30 pound braid. And I'm usually running like a 35 to 40 pound monofilament leader on there because I know that I'm going to take that frog and I'm going to go, buddy, see that tree over there. You're going up underneath that tree. You ready? Yes. Cause he's going way back Ooh, up in there. Up into the tree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? Hey, I caught, I cast one into a tree and broke the tree line, tree limb. All right. Yeah. That, that I'm getting that. That eight dollar, nine dollar frog yeah. back. <laughs> I've brought logs up to the and boat. That's, and that's unhooked. a good point. I mean, that's yeah. still a thing. I can sit here and tell you, you know, this is two out of like ten boxes that I have stacked with tackle on my boat on a daily basis, and then probably more in the toolbox of the truck. But when you break it down, you can go back to that frog in this summertime heat, and you can throw that frog on braided line, and you'll catch fish. You're gonna catch fish. That's the whole beauty of it. Is that you know, you can have Jacob Wheeler, and I fish next to him, not against him, obviously, but I fish next to the guy where he's throwing. I, I don't even know what the guy's throwing, but he's throwing, you know, multi-millionaire throwing something into the middle of a canal. And here I am with a worm, or with a frog, I'm sorry, with a topwater frog, just dragging through lily pads, and here comes a five-pounder. Boom! And you're like, yeah. You didn't <laughs> win anything, that. but you sure felt like yeah. you did. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just the... Uh... Just the environment in which you pitch those 
those lures like that or cast them up into, you've got yes. to have that heavy now, line to get it back. Now, and that's what you said. You, you're talking about the Abu Reel mm-hmm. you have. Man, that is, that is, I don't think, I think I'll get there eventually where I'm really, really particular about reels. But right now I'm not. I've found a couple that work. You know, Quantum has been very, very good for me. Um, I've got two Daiwas that I absolutely love. Right now, I think that I'm almost in like the perfect mecca of fishing where I've got like the baits that work for me on the chain that works for me. I can go to these clear water private lakes and catch them. But the rods, matching them with whatever reel you like has been like over the top fantastic. If you told me tomorrow, like, you're like, yeah, you can have your Phoenix rods, but you can only put, you know, an Abu Garcia, whatever, whatever on, on it. I'd probably be a little bummed to be honest with you. Cause I know how every one of these reels work. I know every one of them's, you know, lubed and, and whatever. And they're not the greatest of reels. I think the most I've ever spent for a reel is like 150 bucks just for the reel. Like I'm not throwing big money Shimano DCs and stuff, but, but knowing as long as it gets from point A to point B and it's going to get it back that the rod has enough backbone in it is like, Oh my goodness. That's been huge for me. See, the big reason I throw that Abu Garcia 6,600 is because not only do I fish freshwater with it, I've, fish saltwater with it and on that 6600 there is 300 yards of 30 pound yes blade. so when that big bull red hits that yeah. go ahead spool me it's gonna be a long run bud what it's funny, <laughs> it's funny. If you get a bass that spools you, you yeah it's not a bass <laughs> no <laughs> it's a gator yeah. it's a or a mudfish We've yeah that oh before. my god but i mean you bring up a great point we talked about it today with a friend of mine from from high school actually that works for the county now and we were talking about it, and I said, dude, these are the first rods that I think I've ever been comfortable enough to be like, hey, we're going to the beach, and we're going to fish in our coastal. I'm not 100% sure the reels would take the abuse, but I am 1,000% sure the rods would. The rods could like, handle Oh, it. my goodness, yeah. Dude, I don't, they, I don't I work. Mean, dude, I'll tell you right now, I don't work for Phoenix. I don't have, you know, I'm going through a person that is is sponsored by them, but kind of on a recommendation, like, hey, you should try this. And it's been like, I have no doubt in my mind that this, the Nanotech M1 would do fantastic against a 28 or 30 inch red. No doubt. Dude, and I've that, never that, had that about a, about a rod. I've had, uh, God, I think I had three ducats before this. I had a couple of loos that I really, really liked. A um, couple I broke on my own. You know, stupidity. You put them under, under the cleat of the boat and you got to pick them off, off the bow. You break them or whatever, like, you know, small stuff. But... I've never felt that confidence like I would take this into the intercoastal and take on a good sized redfish. You know, who's that? Uh, I'm trying to, I was going to say to test the, the real strength of a rod you give it to, uh, but who's that one professional bass fisherman that is always just like, his name's wrong to my tongue, but he gets so livid about every little thing. Mike Iconelli. Mike Iconelli. Mike Iconelli. <laughs> the Iconelli fit. <laughs> Oh, he snaps him in half when he loses. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I would too at that level, but yeah, he would not do well for Phoenix rods. <laughs> like, I don't oh, think he does well for anybody are, except for a steel rod. These things are great. I'm in second place. I'm feeling great. They'd be like, hey, Mike, uh, Gerald Swindle just weighed in with a nine-pound fish. Go pow! <laughs> Over the knee. <laughs> Over the knee, and yeah. then he throws it in the water. But Yeah, I it's, yeah I mean, legitimately the only rods that I've ever been like, Oh, I could throw this into a, we fished uh, a fish attractor 
yesterday, and I hooked in a, I mean, it must have been a, unless it was a mudfish or a turtle. This sucker was every bit of seven or eight pounds, and I was like, I got him. And he broke off, or the hook set was bad, or whatever. It was on the Maxim. Um, I think it's a 7.6 uh, Maxim from Phoenix. And I broke off, and I instantly hooked the worm hook into one of the fish tractors. And I don't know if you know, but when they put them down... They weighed them. No, yeah, they're anchored down there. They don't plan on taking them back, boys. So when I set the hook in that PVC or whatever it was, <laughs> I thought I still had the fish. <laughs> I'm yelling net. Biggest fish of his life, I'm yeah. I'm yelling net. And I lean back on that sucker, and I say, you're coming out of this pile right now. And we did that for about five minutes until the uh, rod pulled me closer than the trolling motor could in about 20-mile-an-hour winds. <laughs> and I said, I don't think it's a fish. <laughs> <laughs> we got right over top of it, and the hook came out of the fish tractor, and I was kind of surprised that I didn't snap the rod. I mean, I, like I said, I, like, I get it. You know, you got your favorite rods, and, and I've always had my favorites, but... I've never put anything to the beating that I put these two through in the last week. And this is just the first week and a half, two weeks where I'm like, no, I could hit this fish and get him in the boat. I'm like, no, we're going to snatch him. <laughs> we're we're going to give him the business end and see how this does. Cause I, you know what I mean? You kind of want to test something and see if it's up to your par of like the worst standards. Like you get a bad hook set or you get whatever and you're going to lose fish. But when you lean back, and then I'll show you in a minute. We'll bend over the nano. You're gonna be shocked for a freshwater rod, right? Because I think, and I could be wrong, but I think their their real main seat is in the in the saltwater business. They've got a big seat. Phoenix mm. does in the in the saltwater business. They're known for offshore rods. My goodness, I see. I get you know notifications for guys catching you know big groupers and stuff on them. I'm like, Oh, that's not the same rod I got. <laughs> I'm not going to know it's there until Chris it's on like, the boat. it's on, baby. <laughs> I'm going to go to cast, and that sucker's going to be on the other end. But uh, just the backbone. And so, like, when I set the hook on that fish yesterday, I, I still cannot believe it. I yanked straight up on that fish, and I don't know how I didn't throw a two-and-a-half-pound, three-pound fish over the boat with a <laughs> hook set. And it didn't break the rod. <laughs> I'm fully expecting a broken rod. I'm going to send it back. I still I kept the shipping tube. <laughs> Dude, that's how I knew I was going to put it to the test. I kept the shipping tube. It's sitting in my in my uh, game room at the house. I was like, oh, yeah. Uh, so you, you sure your kid hadn't made a toy out of it yet? or He has not. Not yet. It's coming. I'm sure. So tell me, Chris, who got you into fishing? Uh, I mean, that's absolutely a you know, father something. My dad definitely did. When we were kids, you know, my dad used to take us out to uh, Wakaiva Island here. It's real popular now, but back in the day before it was what it is now, you could go out there and catch 20 bass. I was before told, they ruined it, man. I liked it better when it was just that nasty old bait shop. Yeah. Yes. chairs. Yes. The beer cooler that was sort of cold. Oh, you could rent out, <laughs> you could rent out the side house, but we never knew when it was going to burn down next. You know, yeah. there's like six fires out there for 10 years. But I mean, yeah. And I was told you were going to challenge me on eating bass. When I was a kid, we did out of there. Spring fed, crystal clear water. We ate the heck out of bass. I, I eat everything. Yeah, that's well, I, what I, I, I just told him I earlier. Throw, oh. I throw my bag. Now, now, I told him on the way here, I almost brought a two and a half pound of slap on the table for some credibility. But as a rule, I generally don't eat them. Is it because you enjoy catching them so much or because you don't like the way they taste? I think it's a mindset. 
Okay. I, th- I think it's because I've been taught my entire life that bass are hard and they're tough and whatever. And recently I've had a friend that's really big into crappie and he's mixed them in with crappie. You can't tell the difference. No, I, I, I've, so as a kid, when we would grow up catching bass, my, my first 16 years I spent in Western New York. So we'd catch bass in ponds and most of the time we'd catch them on either bluegill or if we were lucky enough to get shiners, we'd catch them that way. Uh, every now and again, we'd really get lucky and hook one on a worm or a red devil or something like that, like under a boat dock. But man, we ate them all. I had to be over 12 inches long. In yes. Western New York. Yeah. Back in, well, back in the day, we used to too. It used to be 12 to, my goodness, I think it was 12 to six, 16 or 18, something like that. When we were kids, it was the same thing. It was, it was kind of crazy. It was like, you could keep, but it was more of a fish eating age. If that makes sense. Yeah. So we, you ate fish, you caught fish, you ate, you brought them home. You, your dad showed you how to clean them and I'm much younger than you, but that's, it's generational. Generationally. Yeah. That's how it worked. But then I moved down here. I moved to Florida. You know, my dad got a job down here. I came down here when I was 16 years old and people would, you know, I'd do whatever chatting and say, Oh, how many bass did you catch? And now we caught 30 bass, which to me was just mind blowing. And I'm like, wow, how many can you keep? And they look at me like, why? I'm like, oh, so you can eat them. And people are like, bash is a trash fish or bash is terrible. It doesn't taste <laughs> good. And I would look at them like, are you nuts? So I, I've always, I can't figure that out. Why in Florida, and I don't, maybe it's that way throughout the Southeast, so many people will tell you that bass doesn't taste good. Because I'm here to tell you right now, man, if I catch a bass, I eat it, man. It's one of the best fried sandwich eating fish there is in the water. And I don't know why it's got that reputation yeah. other than, People want to catch bigger ones. Well, I think it's two-faced, right? I think it's I think it's part of it is we have such a big uh, industry for the major bass guys here and here and I mean, dude, you're ten minutes away from one of the biggest bass fishing meccas ever in the Harris chain. Because if you don't like it, pick up your trolling motor, go to the next lake. It's completely different. The water clarity is different. The fish are different. The bite different. You know, they're in a different season or whatever. So I think a lot of it stems from that, but I think a lot of it, it's two part. The other part is someone in the middle told us they were tough because as a kid, like I, you know, I had pictures of me and my dad holding up 20 pound stringers. We ate those fish. I promise you we ate those fish. Yeah. We, ate every, we ate every scrap and whatever. I don't think we ever went as far as to try the eyeballs, but my goodness, we ate those fish. And then somewhere along the line, it was, you know. Not that I agree with it, but it was, you know, hey, these that, that's not cool. We don't eat them. And you would get torn apart in a bass chat right now if you said you were eating fish. Well, that, so I, when it comes to all this, it's probably one of the reasons why I tell you that I'm not a great fisherman. Because when I go to fish, I fish until I catch what I need to eat. Right. Or I fish until I'm bored. If I don't catch anything, and then I'm I'm done. Like the whole, but if, I guess for the same reason that I, I don't go hunting to take pictures. But, but there when are people you hunt, when you let me ask you this: when you hunt, if four deer walk out into a food plot that you worked all year on, right? You've done all, or you? I'm, I'm assuming you're you're bigger into hunting. Yeah. Okay. So you you set up this plot, you tilled the ground, you did everything the whole year. Eight-hour drive into Georgia. 
You get all the I way up there. I kind of see where you're going. Yeah. You get all the way up there and four deer walk out. Okay. There's a six point, an eight point, say a nine point, and a ten point. What do you shoot? Oh, you know damn well I'm shooting a ten point. Why? Because that's just what you do. It's the pursuit. <laughs> it's the yeah. pursuit as a human. Right. That that here I am in the wild, in the wilderness. I think that's what makes us all, you know, grown men is that you go after, you know, what can I do as a human that's going to be the greatest. Right. My greatest achievement is that I've worked so hard to get this this big ten point in. To me, it's the same thing, and I've had, dude, you can know, I've had eight and eight and a half pound fish in the boat, and been like on the phone with the taxidermist, and been like, how much is it to mount this sucker now, or if I get a replica, I let that fish go. Every time, because I know. If that fish goes back and eats on the shad and the bluegill that I know are there, my kid might catch him when he's 10 pounds. There's no, and, and would I eat him in a pinch? Oh, absolutely. I know how to clean a fish like it's, you know, second nature. It's not, it's not that issue. It's more of a, you know, what are you keeping big fish wise for the future? Now the one and two pounders, my buddy that, that eats them like crazy or, or has no issue eating them, we will keep one and two pounders out of healthy fisheries and, and he will fry those. But so the I guess bigger that, ones, we don't. I guess that's the difference in that. Um, well, one, I'm not that great a fisherman. I'm a terrible fisherman. right? I, I, so I've never caught an eight-pound bass. Never had the opportunity to be like, well, what do I have to do? Yeah, it's the it's the ones and two pounders. But again, I'm I'm setting forth with the idea that I'm going to go fishing to catch something to eat. You know what I mean? And but and I and I'm not I'm not saying that somebody's wrong in this, right? No, I'm but it's the that, mindset that, you go into. Right, it's with. my desire. Yeah. Like, and I, we joked about it on one thing earlier. Like, if somebody said you want to go tarpon fishing, I'd be like, why? I'd go tarpon fishing in Louisiana or Texas where you get to keep them. Yeah, but why would I go tarpon fishing in Florida? Because that's like. That's like window shopping, man. It's you bring anything yeah. home, right? And I just, or it'd be like if somebody asked me to me, and I'm just making, these are terrible parallelisms because I get where you were going on the deer. You'd shoot the 10 point, but if somebody asked me, do you want to go take photographs of deer? And the answer would be like, only if the pursuit is because once the season opens, I'm going to come back and shoot it, <laughs> right? But um, even in my selection of deer, and there's probably some deer hunters out there that are going to lose their mind at this. Like, so you got a whole bunch of does out there. Uh, I don't shoot the biggest doe, and part, part, for a couple of reasons: survival rate. The big one's probably going to be around next year to make more deer, but food quality-wise, I'm shooting the yearling most of the time. Not as much yield, but you can do anything you want with that yearling, right? So I guess if I was catching, I've learned the hard way, like with with black drum and saltwater. Um, a lot of people tell you drum's not good. Well, the small ones are great, but if you go catch that big old breeder that weighs 35 pounds, that thing, it's woody. I mean, the, the meat it resembles more like chicken than it does fish. I say it's like chewing on a piece of cork. Yeah, so since then, if I catch another big, if I catch a big black drum, you know, it's not what I'm targeting, but if I catch that one, it's going back. It's no, it's no good to eat. So I guess we're, we may be similar in there. Um, but I'm, we're getting way too into like, why do I do one thing versus I catch? No, you're not. I mean, you're making, you're making good points from one side to the other. We've never met. So for you, 
you, you bring up a great point. When I go crappie fishing, and I take my kid crappie fishing on the same lakes that I bass fish for, right? But when I crappie fish, it's simple. It's with a jig or it's with minnows. When we're out there for either the quality of time or I go out with the mindset to eat. When I do it with bass, I don't necessarily. Yeah, so and you we, catch a lot more of them too. It's not a question of any time you could. I guess that's probably the biggest thing. Yes. If I was catching as many bass as you are to where I, I couldn't possibly eat them all, right? Right. I, I would throw them back. Right. And I guess that maybe that's the biggest difference is you enjoy fishing so much more than I do where you're fishing how many times? Three, four, five times a week? Yeah. And if you and if you study, like, if you watch statistics like I do and you see all these biologists and everybody come down and, and research your lakes, right, mm-hmm. and you see how much of a an anomaly it is to catch a, a double-digit bass, that's when you're, like, you're kind of in awe. Right. And, and that's when, like, I'm like, I don't – if it were a deer – I'd have a hard time letting it go. If it, if it was a, you know, my ten pound bass were a twelve point deer, oh, I'd have a, I'd have a, I'd have a struggle in my hands, boys. But let me tell you, I'd be mad at myself driving home. Sure. Either way, whether that cooler was empty or full, because with a with a twelve point deer, you know, granted some crazy circumstance, it's a lot of meat. That is a lot of natural meat to go into my freezer yeah. that would feed my family. They're in a meat crisis or or whatever, you know, or a, you know, I'm feeding my family with what I hunted versus that 10 pound bass. Sure. There's not a lot of meat coming off of that. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm missing out on more than I'm losing or more than I'm gaining. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm missing out on more than I would gain by keeping it. Yeah. You know, we, in South Carolina, we caught a 42 pound catfish. Oh, I'd eat that. No, we let it go. <laughs> Well, and part of the reason we let it go, well, it wasn't the first fish we caught during the day, and we had a whole bunch of 8 to 10 to 15-pound catfish. Eating size. But a 40, everybody thinks that they're common. They're not. When you're talking about a 40-pound catfish um, in the place that we were at up in Lake Marion, and that's no secret because that's what it's known for, people go and, and drift for catfish. They're hoping to hook into that 40, 50, 70-pound catfish. Um. And I was the one that actually reeled it in. It was a, one of the ladies that we were with. My, my friend Jay Platt's wife caught a problem. And it's fish. But it really is a catfish of a lifetime, especially if you're not a dyed-in-the-wool catfisherman. But we never, we never thought about keeping it because it's going to go back. It's going to make a million babies. And a fish like that that gets to that big does stand. It, it, it could be one of those ones that might hit 100 pounds someday. Right. If it gets that far. And, and there's other things came into my head. I'm, I thought, and I don't know enough about catfish, but I was like, going back to the drum experience, I was like, that one's probably not that good to eat. Yep. So I imagine some of that may come into bass. Having never caught an eight-pound bass and filleted it, I don't know. But if I did and I filleted it and the meat quality wasn't any good, I'd let it go. Right. Um, and I also want to be real clear in there because people listen to this and somebody might be ripping the hair out or threatening to you know, punch me next time they see me. <laughs> I got no beef with catch and release fishermen from the standpoint at all. They're paying, their, they're paying for the license. They're buying tons of gear. They're putting money into Dingle Johnson, right? They're paying the boat fuel. They're paying the taxes on the boat. And if you really want to get into it, the, where I really start in all these sportsmen, say, versus other people that are not contributing to the whole conservation movement, man, the guy that's buying the fishing license, I don't care what you're chasing. 
you're buying the fishing license, you're going out and doing your thing, you're on my team. Right? That that's really what the whole fishing hunting thing that I start with is is the conservation because if it wasn't for us we wouldn't I don't think we'd have it. We'd have there wouldn't be I don't think there'd be any fishing. I think we'd have we'd have fished them all out, you know, before I was born if there wasn't regulations and limits and all this money going back in to make more. So uh, I, I get well, we can yeah. sit at the table all night and say, me and you don't eat bass, or the four of us don't eat bass. There's plenty of people out there eating bass. Yeah. Every night. Yeah. There's, I mean, I'm That's like on the, the water all the time, and I can take four spots right now where guys are throwing cast nets. Let me tell you. Nah, uh, so that's, that's no-no right there, man. Whatever's in that net, yeah. they're eating that night. I play by the rules, but. You know, it's funny. I do, too, so I if, do too, but I've if we it. get to know each other better, yeah. and I go fishing yeah. with you several times, and all of a sudden that my bass catching skills triple, I, I may have to reevaluate things. Yeah. Right? Because it'd be great if all of a sudden every time I go out and catch bass, I'm bringing home five. And then pretty soon I'm going to start, like I said, looking at the freezer going, hmm. Well, I I, you know what the funny part one. is? I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't keep chasing bass. I'd chase something else looking for variety. That's the. When I first started hunting deer, it was great when you got one. And then all of a sudden, now I go out and I, to feed our family, it was five deer a year. Now my kids are growing older. I'm kind of going into a bit of a crisis because it was like, what do I got to do to catch five deer? Right? Catch, right? Hate when people say it. Catching deer. Catching deer. (laughs) But what do I got to do to put five deer in the freezer? And now I I have no doubt that I'm going to get five deer a season one way or another. But I'm going in a bit of a crisis because now it's like I, I don't. You don't need five. Well, and that's where my so now I'll become really in. a horn hunter. Yes, so that's where my struggle right? comes in with deer hunting is that I'm like, like this year I'll go out and kill one for the first time in years, hopefully, like knock on wood. But if I do, I don't feel like I'm there yet. I killed them on, you know, 300 acres of private land. So I, I'm kind of in the same boat where, and I think that's why I stray so much. Where I'll like, I'll fish the Harris chain weeks on end looking for that double digit bass. And then I'll go, ah, it's not working out here. Or I've caught a bunch of three and four and five pounders. I'm going to go somewhere else and I'll pick up and I'll go to a private lake or I'll go somewhere else and be like, the hunt is back on. Yeah. I have zero data on that, you know, Lorenz graph. I have no idea what the bottom looks like. I have no idea what the water clarity looks like. I enjoy that. And that's, I think that's what you're talking about. It's kind of, you could go out and once you get good at it or you get comfortable in it, you're always going to have that longing for a little bit more. Yeah. I oh, like I'm a man fine. of many hypocrisies. Like I figured that out. Like when I start trying to think rationally about things, there's things I just can't reconcile. Yeah. What the nice thing about being 50 is you get comfortable with the idea that I'm an imperfect being though. Even in this conversation, I'm like, Oh, there's yet another hypocrisy. You didn't realize you had. Yeah. constantly finding new ones man it's like because well there's no there's no static right it's like well i feel this way because and then as you start to get into examine even in our conversation about why you start to feel the way you do you realize that you start to think about the things that are coming into play as to why you feel the way you do and if something changed you still feel that way and, and there are some things that i'm like i'm still very black and white about in life um that's a whole other podcast would bore a lot of people but in, in things like conservation, especially, there are things that are subjective, right? Or uh, this is some, one of the things I think that in conservation we're kind of fighting with is and how resources are managed. 
a person that is really good at hunting or really good at fishing is going to want things managed one way, but the noob is going to want to manage different because, and you even see that in states, right? Some states manage for quality, right? Fewer animals can be taken or the, the size the animal has to be much larger and it's so much harder to chase that animal. And then you have states um, like say Colorado where they're kind of known just, well, they were, now they're changing, but if you wanted to hunt and get a tag, you just go to Colorado. Oh, yeah. They're, I mean, they're five dollars quantity. I was, yeah, I was, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. When we were there, it was like, you've always hunted whitetail deer. You go in for a tag and they're like, you sure you want whitetail? It's fine. Here you go, five bucks. How many do you want? Yeah. It was, it was insane to us, but everyone was hunting elk and the big muleys. And we're here, we were, and we're like, I just want a eight point or 10 point whitetail. They're like, okay, take your number, walk out into the millions of acres of public land we have during, you know, these four seasons and harvest one or pull over on the side of the road, get out of your truck, walk a certain distance and you can harvest one that's grazing on the plains. Yep. To, to, to bring your point, I mean, yes, that's exactly how Colorado was. Like the Wawa West, you wanted to eat. Let me tell you, Walmart had the answers because you should buy a tag. You got some ammo. You're good to go. Right. And I can't, people, I don't want to make a whole podcast about me. It should be about you. But in this, because I think they're, the thing I'm trying to, I'd like to highlight is that we all fish and hunt for a little different reasons. It's easier to have this conversation with guys like you than say somebody that's totally foreign to it. Because, you know, they come up and ask you why. Why? And I used to feel like I had to justify it. And people would say, but you can get your cow at the, you know, at the. At the grocery store, and I try to go. What makes cow different from deer? Yeah, you can go. To, you just go down that rat hole, and, you, and there's no convincing anybody. So the the real answer is I don't know why, but I prefer to eat. I prefer to eat things that I have been in the process, top to bottom, right? If I if I was if I was going to eat a bunch of chicken, I'd want to raise them, but I'm really not into chickens because well, anybody can raise them. Though I'm sure I say that in the chicken farmers like, yeah, you don't know shit. Excuse my language. But I prefer to eat the wild stuff. And and, and I, I don't know why. I just do. And I prefer to be part of that process. So because I come to that mindset, it all starts with food. And I think we were kind of getting into that. Yeah. Whether it's fish or deer or, or even going and chasing scallops or, or pen shells. And there's all kind of, I, I've got a whole litany of things that I'll eat that most people are like, you eat that? And I'm like, yeah, they're actually pretty good if you want to cook but it. But aside from rare cases where... Guys just up and have that like manly gumption to go out and catch a fish and clean it, right? Aside from that, it's all taught, and that's going away. Because as we talk about, you know, how'd you get into fishing and and how'd you eat your first fish, for example, like kids these days, or when I say kids these days, but there's a lot of people still doing it the the old fashioned way. But the majority, from what I see, are like, oh yeah, I ordered it at a restaurant. Where the rest of us are like, no, I caught it, and I cleaned it. Oh yeah, with my dad. The, the hardcore fishermen won't eat a fish at a restaurant. I've met a lot of guys like that. Like, oh, I I, I'm still like that. I won't eat seafood. Uh, I break the rule every once in a while, but I, I, as a rule, I do not like seafood anywhere here. And I'm talking Central Florida, because at one point I was in Colorado, and they're like fresh seafood. I'm like, where's the ocean? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> you mean you don't you don't eat you don't eat oysters in Colorado? <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you, they're like fresh caught redfish. Where? Yeah. Because you have like the Arkansas River, 
and like two other lakes. I know I duck hunt them. That's it. Or you catch a redfish out that are fresh. <laughs> so I'm in the like same boat where I'm like, like seafood wise. Anyways, I would rather go out on 44 and buy it from a truck where the guy's like, I don't have that. Didn't catch it today. Okay. I'll buy what you did catch today. You know, like that's my fresh. I don't like the idea of frozen. I'm sure you'll have another podcast for that, but yes, absolutely. So, it's will you freeze mindset. your fish? If you catch a bunch and you're out there to catch yes. meat. You, you, yes. Yes. We, yes, we absolutely have, but there's a certain, I guess it's less of a scientific reason and more of a historical reason where I have like older relatives that live on the Suwannee and used to run, you know, 15, 20 minutes out into the Gulf. And they have a certain way of like, if you're going to freeze it, you put, you know, like redfish, you have to have women with redfish. It doesn't matter if you're freezing it or you're cooking it. It's got to have sliced lemon. in it. So if you're going to freeze it, it's got to have, you know, whole women per two slabs frozen with it laid out on top when it's frozen before you can freeze it. Same thing grilling. If you're going to grill redfish or sheephead, it's got to have lemon stacked on top of it when you smoke it. And that's a family thing, or is that something that's just coming out in the swamp? Dude, into. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> that's the only guy in our family that lives up there who went up there years and years and years ago. And he's like, oh, my goodness. He's probably 79, 80 years old. And we, we just went up a couple of weeks ago to see the guy, and we used to go up there. I used to go up there as a kid, and then later – as a teenager, I'd go up there and stop by and we'd jump on the Swanee and go out to the Gulf. And I mean, the man still, I, th- I think from the way he was talking, anyways, the guy still eats fish, you know, three, four days a week. So the question is, did he have a lemon tree where he made lemonade? I don't and think he made so. Lemon- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, I, was, I don't think there's too many frozen redfish in Florida. I think you did. Get one. I think yeah. you did. Right. I think you did. And it was, uh, uh, it's called the Publix variety. Yeah. I'm sorry, Chief One does not have a Publix. It was a Walmart. Oh, so you're going to like save a lot if you're going to Chief One. They, they have a Walmart now. Don't get it twisted. Two red lights, a Walmart, and a Beef Brady's. It's advanced. And a Sonic. Well, let's go ahead and wind this thing down, man. And at the end of every episode, we like to do the under pressure outdoors tip of the week. So I'll go ahead and, and kick us off with, with actually, I have two. Right. So I'm going I'm to give you two. The first one is. Uh, I can't tell you how many rod tips I've closed in the tailgate and broken the end of a rod in the tailgate of a pickup truck. And something I've learned is the best way to avoid closing your rod tips in the tailgate of the pickup truck is to stick the rod tip in first. Stick it in. I stick that, put the, put them in tip first, leave the back of the rod back there because I'm, I'm less, I notice the back of the rod in the way where it's just that little tiny rod tip sticking on there and I'll close it in there. And number two, um, we actually posted an article to the group page. It's probably been more than a month now that it was up. But uh, the article stating if you gut hook a fish, you know, they swallow your lure or whatever, you're better off cutting the line and letting the fish pass the hook than you are trying to perform minor surgery to get your hook back because the hook, the, the fish is actually more likely to survive that way. And I'll see if I can dig that article up again and I'll repost it when we, when we publish a podcast or maybe put a link to it in the podcast description. So you guys can read that too. It's really interesting. I mean, it was even from from bluegill down to you know everything, and that changes with the type of tackle you're using. Obviously, if you're using titanium hooks, they're less likely to uh, survive passing that than they are a 
like straight steel hook because the hooks rust out or whatever, but they're still more likely to survive passing the titanium hook than they are to survive your surgery, trying to get your titanium hook back. So my buddy Jason Gondra mentioned once or twice, he was out fishing with Captain Jordan Todd, and they caught just this monster triple tail. You know, and same thing, they actually released it because a big female, want more triple tail. But as they're holding this thing up for pictures, that triple tail passed, as they're holding it up, passed a whole jig hook intact, hook intact, in the boat, out, out of the anal, right into the boat. That's awesome. See, <laughs> so, it's it's there. I don't know how. I, I can't believe that hook passed the entire digestive tract. I wonder if the guy that was fishing with him didn't have a barb on it, perhaps. But yeah, that that's that's a hard fish to pass that. Oh, but bunch. I mean, outstanding tip. Yeah, it, does, it doesn't get better because if you hook. You know, on a good week, 150, 200 fish in a week, you see that. It happens. It's the Harris chain, baby. You see yeah. You see fish that have been caught 200 times. They look at a lot of your orders, and they're like, I've seen that before. And when you catch them, a lot of them still have hooks in them. And it's the same thing. I tried my hand at surgery and, and not won that battle. I'll tell you right now. And those are the fish that usually end up getting eaten. You know, for, for that reason is because you're, they, they're gut hooked. Sometimes they take that worm and you don't know, but great advice. Great advice. Let them pass it. So Chris, just something, something Chris said earlier, just kind of struck a nerve with me. Not necessarily a nerve, but it, it just hit me. And I'm going to use this as my, my tip of the week. Enjoy the pursuit, right? Because Chris said earlier that it's about the pursuit. So don't be afraid to go out. If you don't catch a ton of fish, enjoy your time there. Enjoy the pursuit that you have put in to try and get that animal, whether it be a deer or a fish or whatever you're after. Jim, Chris? I think that sums it up. I'll put. I'm going to go the other way with... um, There are... I'm sure there's some folks listening to the podcast that have been at this forever and others that might be a little bit newer. And uh, going, whether it be bass or deer or whatnot, um, if you're going to pursue the food, if you're going to go pursue the animal for food, take the time to learn how to properly clean the animal, whether it be fish or deer or turkey or goose, and learn. Some of it's going to, you're going to have some failures. But learn how to prepare each one of those animals in something that is different from just fried or just hamburger or just sausage. Learn how to prepare whole cuts. Learn how to grill. I mean, I think almost everybody knows this, but to me the best way to eat redfish is on the half shell, right? But uh, I like blackened redfish and things like that. But there's even technique to that so that you don't dry it out. Um that's basically it, man. Take if you're again. I'm coming from the whole food quality thing. That's just my bias. Uh, so I would encourage everybody to get a little bit, get a little bit better at that, man. YouTube. Don't be afraid to try new things because the more things you figure out, the easier it is to eat more wild game and more fish and, and not waste it and inter- and then use that. Here's the real. Uh, that is probably the easiest way to go out and recruit somebody new to the sport is, wow, I ate that, and it tasted good, 
and I had the story as to and the work and everything else. So I'm going to encourage people to learn how to cook. What do you got, Chris? This whole show's been tips. Yeah, my entire <laughs> show has been tips. One more. Uh, so I think my biggest tip, taken away, when I talked about it a lot today was the rod, the rod thing and how like hooked I am on the new rods. And I think what would have saved me had I had the tip was stop buying cheap rods. If you're going to go out and you're going to fish, you're going to start fishing like I did. And you may never get to a 10 or 15 rod base like some guys have. They're really good into it. You're going to spend that $150, $200 in rods as quickly as you break them. You're going to spend that money almost immediately. Don't buy cheap. I have wasted so much money on buying cheap rods, you know, and, and nothing against them because they brought it to everyone, but... But Walmart quality rods, man. Yeah, they've got Halo, which are some good rods now. But a lot of your lower levels, I spent that money in five or six rods before I bought one quality. And that's whether you go Phoenix or, or Ducket or you know, even Halo or whatever. Spend the extra you know, 20 or 40 or 60 bucks for one rod that comes with a warranty that you can trust. Because it's a you know, big thing in... in goodness in, in tournament fishing alone big thing is confidence it's like the biggest thing out there is you're not going to catch them if you don't think you're going to catch them if, you're, if your mind is already out of the game you've already lost so go into it with a little, little bit of confidence spend the extra money or save up to to spend that extra money buy a 150 dollar rod buy a 200 dollar rod you're going to have that so much longer than you would that 30 dollar 40 dollar rod that it's going to it's going to pay off in the long run so that's it yeah I'll give you one more budget tip because you brought up Walmart. Maybe think about this. There have been times where I've literally been forced to buy rods at Walmart. It's the only place I could get them. Right. Walmart does have some better rods in there. Now. Now. They're coming out with them now. Yes. This is like one of those those ticks you, the, the, the tips you see on the internet now. Like when you go to Walmart and whatever. So when you go to Walmart and you're going to buy just those single rods, walk down. Don't look at the price, but look up at the top of the rod and you find that one that's got like, a, I mean, just the very last eye broke off of it. Dog, now we're... Pull that sucker off the shelf, uh-uh. talk to the manager, and I've gotten them for like $20 less than what yes. they were and buy a rod to yes. repair kit. It's a, it's a budget, <laughs> it's a budget fix, but I got, I got one to counter your, before we move on to Jordan, I got, I got one to counter your slamming the, the tips into the tailgates, Okay. Put the rods in your truck. Put them in your SUV. Unless you're driving a single cab pickup truck, don't put them in the bed. If you're going to pay that much for three or four rods, and even at a cheap quality, you're talking a casting reel is like 75 bucks at Walmart for an Abu Garcia, matched with a rod, matched with your favorite lure tied on and, and hooked up, put those suckers in the truck. Because you won't slam them in the tailgate, and no one will steal them. Uh, they, yeah. They will fit in your truck, in the passenger floorboard, stretched all the way to the back seat, I promise you. Put them in there. The problem you run into is when you're like me and you buy eight-foot rods, that's when the issues start. But for now, it's a, a secondary tip to yours. Either put the tip in first in the bed, or put them suckers in your truck. Well, thank you guys. Thanks, Chris, for, for joining us out here this week. You know, we still got hike to hunt going on and we're Jim's 
posting pictures, nasty feet pictures all over the group page of his, his worn out souls. It looks so nasty uh, now. They're all taped up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When they're not taped up and the pictures are there. That's almost <laughs> embarrassing because I, it's, it's bad when I used to do a bunch of hiking and I know I know when to stop I know how to take care of your feet and I blew I blew all the rules early right but I also know that well if you tape them up that you can keep going you can actually keep going a long time and your feet will heal but I mean it's pretty clear that I I blew it big time brother especially when I was lubricating a couple of those miles and flip flops, man. Oh. And, and that's, you know, and I was like, Ooh, that one's bad. And I kept on, you know, I taped it up a little. I actually all I had was band-aids. So I'm trying to put band-aids over it and I'm walking. And once you start walking, you get your adrenaline going and everything else. I mean, it just, there's no pain. You keep going. And I was, I was bebopping along in, in South Carolina, kept cutting in miles. And I took a step and I felt something shift. And then all I felt running the entire length of my shoe was fluid. Ugh. <laughs> it was. It's I don't think I'm not eating. Look. Oh my god, man! It was nasty. I had to. I had to wash my shoe out. Oh. When I say nasty, yeah. when I say nasty feet pics, Facebook has put some sensitivity warnings on some of the pictures Jim has posted at the bottom of his feet. God, Actually, my, it was my heel. Man. It was that your was, heel. Yeah. I don't know what happened there. I didn't even. Know, I didn't even know I had that. And, uh, the other day, though, I was. I think I had some kind of abscess that formed in there. That was nasty. Jesus. But um, not family friendly at all. No. no. But we're we're knocking out those miles, man. That's why <laughs> we're we're looking we're still looking for more money for public land. But if you read my thing, it's um, it's our pain for public gain, and I'm I'm trying to knock out a mile for every one of those five dollars that we've raised, and I'm pretty dedicated to it. Plus, I'm enjoying it. I enjoy the challenge. God knows I'm losing weight and I need to lose a whole lot more weight. So throw more money at it. You know, my feet will toughen up and uh, we'll, we'll put out those miles. And whatever I can't do, I will bludgeon Jordan and Will and other people into marching off for us. And we'll say, if you donate extra, I think we could promise on a future podcast or post that we will try to get those feet fixed. Uh, <laughs> don't, don't, <laughs> throw your donation in, obviously for a good cause. And then on top of that... Start one for the feet. Start one for the <laughs> my, feet. That's a good my, feet are, my feet are healing fine. I'll keep posting pictures so you can see that. Yeah, as long as you keep there going, you go. man, your body will catch up. There you go. So you guys know where you can find us. There's always going to be that link down at the bottom of the podcast description to our Facebook group and our Facebook page. And as always, you're going to have that link to join BHA so you get to participate in awesome events like the Hike to Hunt. And uh, Jim was just at a pipe night tonight for the Florida chapter before he came to the podcast. But Chris, tell everybody where they can find you and your YouTube channel and, and see everything you got going on. Yeah, absolutely. So the YouTube channel will launch in the next couple of weeks. Um, still something we're working on, uh, trying to get everything together and get a get a good start of video that makes sense. There's so many YouTube videos out there. We're trying to be a little bit different than just the average, you know, Wednesday night tournament fisher, uh, fisherman. So uh, Instagram is Chris underscore Mac underscore fishing. Uh, that's Chris Mac fishing on Instagram. You can find us there. So I'll definitely put a link to that down there at the bottom in the in the podcast description as well. So you guys don't have to search. You can just click on yeah. it. Yeah, I go. mean, coming soon, we're gonna we're gonna start doing tackle tips uh, for certain days of the week, especially for the beginning fishermen. We're gonna start doing you know reviews of all the baits and what they're called. Kind of skip over the first two years of the hard learning process and get you right where you need to be. That's that's where it's at. Well, until next week. <laughs>